Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. Seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hey there, aviators, AVATs, and avatars. Welcome to this week's edition of Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, along with my co-host, Ben Beltanza. Thanks, Chris. Hope you and all our listeners had a good week since we last talked. I'm glad to welcome everyone back to the podcast. We've got a show filled to full capacity, no empty middle seats on this flight, so we're going to dispense with any more chit-chat and get right to the substance. On the aviation news front, United Airlines reported their Q4 and their year-end results last week. It was ugly as expected. They had a net loss of $1.9 billion for the quarter and $7 billion for the full year. In a departure from the outlook Delta provided the week before, United was more somber. They characterized 2021 as a transition year focused on preparing for a recovery and projected it would take until 2023 to outpace its 2019 performance. Ben, what were the takeaways on the United results as you listened into the call, not just for United, but for the rest of the industry? I was somewhat happy with the United results, not obviously in the financials, but in their characterization of the recovery, which is very much in line with the way I think, and I think where many people are thinking right now. 2021 is likely to be a difficult year for airlines, better than 2020, but not hugely better. The timing of the vaccine rollout doesn't mesh well with a real strong summer for leisure travel. Now, maybe more visiting friends and relatives travel will happen this summer as people want to get together with families and such. But United talking about this as a transition year, I think was right and probably is the way most of the industry is going to be thinking about it. Now, the lower cost carriers as we've said all along on this show, are likely to recover a little bit more quickly. Their costs are lower. They're not dependent on business traffic. So if business traffic doesn't come back quickly, they're not missing out on that. The other thing that I thought was interesting about United's release is they're still losing about $20 million a day. Now they've got $19 billion in liquidity, so you can spend $20 million a day for a long time if you have $20 billion in liquidity. But at some point, they've got to turn that cash around. And unlike Delta, they didn't sort of put a specific time frame on that. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Um, and as we talked about last week as well with Delta and giving them credit for, for to Ed Bastian and his team for walking and talking like leaders – I think Scott Kirby and his team as well on this call did the same thing. Specifically, I'm pointing to their call for likely requiring all their employees to be vaccinated. That's going to take some negotiations with the unions, obviously. Uh, It probably didn't sit well with all aspects of the company. But I think we have to be realistic that if the industry is going to recover, it's going to require this herd immunity that we all have to get to and United showing some leadership and taking on some tough issues. 
by raising that on the call, as as I imagine they're also in discussions with their employee groups about. You know, I agree with that. And I think it's not just an airlines to their employees issue. I think it's a business to the economy issue. I think we need lots of people getting this vaccine as soon as they can. We need to get to that herd immunity or whatever the right term is where everyone's doing that. And I like the leadership that United showed of saying, we're going to ask our people to get this vaccine, be very proactive on that. Undoubtedly, they're going to have some issues with that. But I think we need more business leaders, not just airline leaders, saying, hey, to work in my company, I want you vaccinated. That's one way to get more of the country sort of into this. You know, I've got a uh, niece who's really smart, and she's saying that she doesn't know if she should take the vaccine or not. But I would love it if her employer said, do you take the vaccine? And that might encourage her, right? So there might be a lot of people like that. So, you know, last week did mark the inauguration of President Joe Biden, and we're talking in things of the way he might talk to get this done. In his first day on the job, also, he issued a number of executive orders, including the face mask mandate for federal office buildings and facilities and post offices. But it also includes, Chris, a mandating of face masks for passengers in airplanes and other modes of transportation. Obviously, airlines have said they require this, but there hasn't been a federal mandate until now. Chris, what's your reaction as to whether this was worthy of a day one action by a new president? You know, Ben, I, I think it was. Uh, it wasn't about masks on planes per se, although we could talk about that. As much as uh, setting some clear messaging about how this administration is going to be communicating about the pandemic, as it relates to the airline piece, the news was welcomed by the industry and the unions. For the gate agents and even for, and more so for flight attendants, they shouldn't have to be the mass police. And having a clear policy and guidance from the U.S. government makes things abundantly clear for flight crews and passengers alike. Having said that, I took my daughter to DFW uh, over the weekend to get a flight back to New York. She reported back to me that probably one in five people in the terminal was not wearing a mask. A couple of her fellow passengers tried to board without a mask. They were caught uh, and asked to put on a mask. But then she got on the flight and uh, one of the flight attendants didn't have a mask on. So th- there's cl- clearly more work to be done to make this policy uh, abundantly clear. And while I don't want to make this political, and I know masks have become political, personally, I'm not a subscriber to this whole personal choice theory about wearing masks or not right now. You know, I think personal choice is chocolate or vanilla or cheddar or Swiss on your burger. But right now, I think the the science and the evidence points to masks as being a deterrent to the spread of COVID. And all of us who care about aviation need to be rooting for this pandemic to be managed and managed better. Uh, That's the only way to guarantee the recovery of the airline business and all the jobs that are supported by a healthy airline business. So I'm hopeful that this is just the start of how this administration is going to prioritize COVID and getting out in front of this for the benefit of the economy. I agree, Chris. And for what it's worth, I'm a chocolate and cheddar guy myself. (laughs) (laughs) You know, imagine if seatbelts were a recommendation, but not a mandate. And then somebody on the airplane didn't want to wear their seatbelt, right? The flight attendant would say, put on your seatbelt. And they'd say, well, you know, it's uncomfortable on me. 
right? But nobody does that, right? If somebody doesn't have a seatbelt on, the flight attendant says, please put on your seatbelt. Most of the time, people just say, oh, sorry, I forgot and put it on, right? And masks haven't been this because the airlines have the rule, but it isn't a mandate. So someone can look at the flight attendant and say, you know, it's not a mandate. You can't make me do this. And they could they kick those people off. They can ban them, things like that. But I think this is really good policy is that it it has the flight attendants backs and like smoking on the plane or like wearing a seatbelt. That's what wearing a mask is right now. And flight attendants shouldn't have to be second guessed when they tell you to do it. So as Chris and I were planning this week's program, we thought it would be interesting to our listeners to dive a little deeper into the Washington scene, specifically what all is involved in the transition process for a big agency like the U.S. Department of Transportation. DOT policies and decisions directly impact airlines, manufacturers, employees, passengers, suppliers, airports, and so many others that are part of this huge aviation ecosystem. So we thought we'd bring in an expert of sorts. That's exactly why I'm pleased to welcome and introduce Richard Mitz to the podcast. Richard is now a partner at the Harbor Group, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs firm, and he has represented airlines and aviation interests in multiple capacities over the past 25 years. But more importantly to this discussion, Rich has held senior positions uh, in previous administrations. He held a, a spokesperson's job for the 1992 Bill Clinton campaign was the spokesperson for the Clinton inauguration, and was the Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at the U.S. Department of Transportation under Secretary Federico Pena. So he was in the trenches of a transition and one where there was a change of political parties as well. So we're hoping he can give us a little insight into the current DOT transition process. Rich, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you guys. Yes, transition, interesting times for transfer of power, transfer of government. And DOT, it's no different. I'd make a couple of observations about what happens during transition. First, DOT is an operational agency. And so the first task always, the first priority is to quite literally keep things moving. Planes in the air, trains on, on rails is really to make sure that the mobility of the system isn't compromised or affected during the transition. After that, there really are three Ps, personnel, policy, and problems, which the transition team is really focused on. We were very, very fortunate in that we had tremendous cooperation from the Bush administration, from Andy Card and others in the handoff. It was very, very uh, seamless. And so for us, really the first the first challenge is, is the personnel, who's going to fill the key positions. And there it's a give and take between the new secretary and the White House. As you would imagine, lots of people maneuvering for positions. And it's really about uh, making sure that you, you have people who understand the systems and the modes, understand policy and politics, and you could really hit the ground running from day one. Second are policies. And DOT is not particularly an ideological place. Again, it's an operational agency, a safety agency. And so there aren't really big areas of necessarily a fundamental disagreement on policy. Sure, on things like budgets and funding different modes, highways versus mass transit, those issues are perennial, but they're not necessarily ideological. Uh, and then the third issue, of course, are the problems. They're 
priority of the problems. And there, in that handoff, there are always things that we need to keep a, a close eye on. So personnel, policy, problems, really the key focus during the, uh, during the transition. Thanks, Rich. That was really interesting. And it gave us a good sense as to what might be going on there. But can you give our listeners a sense of what likely has been going on really just in the last two months? I mean, since since Pete Buttigieg knew he was going to become the transportation secretary and since Joe Biden knew he was the president-elect, and what's going on now that the Trump transportation team has left the building? Well, there's always the, the adage about you know, have to find the light switches and get your keyboards. A lot of the first few days really are kind of the enabling functions to be effective in your job. There are ethics briefings. There are security briefings. There's a lot of obviously sensitive information, computer and IT briefings. Depending on how the handover goes, when we had DOT, we, we of course had some of the key security issues that were happening at the time. We had the Coast Guard and we're at that point actively involved in Haitian and Cuban interdiction operations in the, in the Caribbean, in the Gulf of Florida, Straits of Florida. We had aviation security at that point. And so there, was, there were a lot of briefings on basically securing the systems. My guess right now is the new team is coming in and they know what the Biden White House's uh, priorities are and are beginning to think immediately about how to align the DOT machinery, policymaking machinery, communications machinery, to support the president's, the new president's key priorities. And so there, particularly for the, for the career staff, and I, I should mention that, that's really important point, that you know, sitting on top of this operation are 100 political appointees and tens of thousands of operational employees. And their jobs don't change much day to day, if at all, during a transition. And the people at the secretary's office, the career professionals at the tops of those agencies are really the heroes in in many respects. They're the ones who keep things moving and uh, are really crucial in the handoff. But the, the Biden administration's key policies are pretty clear. He's identified four. One is the COVID public health issues. Second is the economy on back on track and infrastructure. Three, climate. And four, uh, the equality agenda on race, income, women. And all four of those key priorities now have to be aligned with the department's uh, focus. Um, you know, we can go into more detail on that, but that's really how the, the process is working. And it takes a while for those machinations of policy personnel to re- get reflected in the activities and the priorities of the department. Rich, some wonder how being the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, with only 100,000 citizens, a small airport with regional service to 13 cities, and a modest public transit system, qualifies you to be the secretary of such a large and diverse federal department like DOT. What's your response as to why Mayor Pete is the right guy for the job? Well, I would say this. What qualifications as a reality game show host and real estate developer allows you to be president of the United States? So, you know, it's an interesting question. Easy, buddy. We're uh, not going to get too political here, but I get your point. 
I understand. But I, you asked me as a Democrat to talk about the Clinton transition, so I'm just saying. But it was interesting. It, I, your question gave me the opportunity to go back and look at the history of the department to truly understand how many people came to the secretary's position as transportation professionals and how many as uh, political uh, appointees, if you will, in the truest sense of the word, because they supported the president and the president wanted to reward them with a cabinet position. And it's about 50-50, maybe slightly skewed more to the those with transportation experience, but even those who had transportation experience came out of a political environment as a governor or as a mayor or previous experience actually in, in the federal government, not necessarily in transportation. So Mayor Pete, in some respects, kind of brings both to the table. I, I, as I was doing this research, I, I was struck by a comment from the third DOT secretary, Claude Brindiger, who had no previous transportation experience, and they, a reporter asked him, you know, what, what gives you the standing to be a uh, secretary of transportation? He said, I've flown a million miles in the last seven years, and I've sat on the harbor freeway for hours in traffic jams. So the, the thing about transportation is we are, we're all intimately familiar with it, right? You know, we use it every day. Mobility is a key part of, of our lives. And so we all have our opinions about it. I think Mayor Pete brings a, a good balance of credentials to the table. He has both the management experience from his time as mayor, which is important in terms of understanding how a, a municipality or a government agency works. And he has uh, great communication skills, a real close relationship with the president, which is really important in terms of the success of the department, getting the resources and attention that it wants. And so I'm optimistic about Mayor Pete's success and potential. I, I think he's an excellent pick. So, Rich, that, that makes sense. I'll tell you one personal paranoia I have is, I guess, a longtime airline guy. Smaller cities like South Bend haven't gotten the best service from U.S. airlines. The, usually you have to take a relatively short flight to a much bigger hub close by. Often that's on, used to be on turboprop planes, now it's on regional jets, right? But it's often on a smaller plane. And you don't get any real great destinations unless you happen to be going to Chicago, Atlanta, or Dallas, or something like that, without that connection. So I'm a little worried that if that is Mayor Pete's view of the way airlines treat all people, will he think about policies in ways that maybe aren't so great for the way airlines really run their networks and have brought efficiency and lower fares to consumers? Ben, you are a propeller head. It is unbelievable to me. We have so many bigger problems right now on the transportation agenda and the aviation agenda to get the industry moving again and back on an economic footing. That's going to be Mayor Pete's number one priority. That I don't doubt for a second. And I think he gets it. First is COVID and, and the COVID recovery and public health and confidence to fly again. That's really the first and only priority right now. You guys made that clear in your, in your opening remark. The second piece is the economic viability of the industry uh, and how that aligns with, with the president's recovery strategy. 
And I think it's really going to be important. He gets it. I mean, the, the government has already provided tens of billions of dollars in support for the industry. I think the requests from municipalities for support for airports, mass transit, are, are going to come fast and furious um, in the beginning of the Biden administration. He's he's well uh, versed in those issues and capable of making those kinds of choices. So I'm also, I would say, in terms of the president's priorities and where Mayor Pete's head is at, that they give him the portfolio for infrastructure. That infrastructure development and investment is going to be a really important part of the economic strategy. And that would fit really naturally in the Department of Transportation's issue portfolio as, as with Mayor Pete as a leader. So I really do hope that's, um, that's something that they're thinking about. The other thing that Mayor Pete's going to have to navigate, particularly with the education industry, is the climate change agenda. And some of the selections already for the staff and the secretary's office and key senior positions signal that transportation is going to have to take up a lot of the weight on the president's climate change agenda. And so for the airline industry in particular, that may not necessarily be what they want to hear in terms of having to balance that priority with the economic recovery agenda. But the president has made it very clear that he has a climate change cabinet and he's expecting every member of the cabinet to help support that agenda. That's great. And that leads really nicely into our last question, which is, what do you think should be the top three priorities for this administration as it relates to aviation? If you're advising President Biden and Secretary Buttigieg, and they said, Rich, tell us what we should focus on. What do you say? COVID recovery and consumer confidence are the top 10 issues. Nothing else matters for aviation right now than making people, dealing with the public health crisis of COVID, getting people vaccinated, and then making sure people have the comfort and confidence to get back on airplanes. That's absolute priority bar none. I think the second priority is, if well that is happening, well we're dealing with the public health crisis, to make sure that the industry can sustain itself. Uh, and when I say that, not just the airlines who've gotten billions of dollars, but all the other components of the industry remain viable to be able to take advantage of, of the bounce back, if you will. Because there will be a post-COVID surge in, in mobility and in flying again, and the industry and uh, government needs to be ready for that. Uh, I would say just two other priorities. One, of course, is climate change, and that is for the aviation industry to think uh, seriously about how they can contribute to that part of the president's agenda. And then for just mobility generally, that it's part of being an American, we expect having access to healthcare and access to education. We also expect access to mobility and particularly for the most vulnerable people in the country, that access to mobility is really important. And so whether that's mass transit or uh, other uh, modes, uh, it really needs to be a priority of the department and that the aviation industry needs to play nicely with others in thinking about that agenda. So um, COVID recovery, infrastructure and economic recovery, climate change and fairness and equality and mobility, those, those are my four priorities. 
Thanks, Rich. Uh, always insightful, always candid, uh, always funny, and always good to talk to you. So we appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to enjoy this conversation. We'll be right back. Travel with confidence with Clear, touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at clearme.com airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Chris Chimes, I'm Ben Baldanza, and this is Airlines Confidential. Chris, thanks a lot for bringing Rich onto the show. He added a lot of great insight. I enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. You know, Chris, Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y capital.com. It's time for a listener question, and this week is from a new listener, David in the UK. Hey guys, just found your podcast and I'm catching up fast. Absolutely brilliant topics discussed. I love that whole brilliant thing. It was interesting in an early episode to hear you talk about Southwest boarding from front and rear of the aircraft, particularly as you mentioned that it's more expensive. Here in the UK and much of Europe, at many regional and smaller airports, low-cost airlines like Wizz Air or EasyJet will often board with air stairs from front and rear even when air bridges are available. Ryanair is even stairs built into its 737-800s, which fold out from the aircraft. Legacy carriers, however, will opt for bridges. Part of the reason, I was told, is that airports and handling agents here charge extra to the airlines for use of a bridge. Presumably, this is not the case in the USA. The other reason I was told was that it's much quicker. On your boarding card, it tells you which door to use based on your seat assignment. Everyone boards at once and queues orderly at the appropriate door. Weather seems not to be an issue given how wet the UK and Europe can be. This got me thinking as well about gates. In the UK and Europe, outside of the big hubs, airlines don't seem to have their own gates. Gates will be shared. A Wizz Air flight, for example, will use a particular gate one day, then the next day a completely different one. Or gate three might be used by air multiple airlines, even those from different alliances. However, in the U.S., airlines seem to rent a physical gate and only use their own gates. Is this the case? And if so, why? Well, I think this is a great question from David. It's actually a couple of questions. Let's talk first about the use of jet bridges versus stairs. I think jet bridges are used by most airlines in the U.S. because they just think it's better service. It keeps you out of the elements. It keeps people more focused in terms of where they are. There are no security issues of people being out on the ramp and things like that. 
obviously, if you fly smaller commuter planes at some airports, you do walk out on the ramp and walk out on stairs. So it's not like everything's done on jet bridges, but they're charged in the US, David, just like they are in Europe. It's just that lots of airlines think it's a better way to board. Now, that said, airlines in the US at smaller stations especially, we'll use stairs now and then and we'll board from front and back. Back when Chris and I worked together at US Airways and US Airways ran the New York, Boston, Washington shuttle, that product did use stairs in the front and back and they did it to be quick. But that product also had a very seasoned customer base who flew that product regularly. So they were really used to it. So it worked well there. I'm not sure it would work as well with maybe a... um, more discretionary traveler or someone who doesn't travel very often. The most innovative solution I've seen to this problem was actually in India at Indigo Airlines, which is a large airline within India or in India. They actually created a sort of switchback ramp that they pull up to the airplanes. So rather than people walking upstairs to the door, they actually go up this ramp and they can They can wheel a wheelchair up that ramp, but people just keep moving. They're not stepping up. And they they claim that that's much faster than stairs and it's much safer than stairs and people just keep moving along. And I thought that was really an innovative solution. So I think it's not really that different between Europe and the US. The costs are pretty much the same. I think it's really more about how to make the people get on and off really quickly. And certainly when you can board in the front and back, you can do it more quickly, but there's also the experience of the customer and sort of the security aspects of that. What am I missing from that whole discussion, Chris? Yeah, I, I think you, you you covered it all. I mean, the only thing I would add, Ben, is I think David puts a spotlight on what I think a lot of us Americans probably know, but don't want to admit, which is we really don't like to be inconvenienced all that much. Europeans and other international travelers are somewhat used to you know, taking more public transit and other kinds of, of ways of getting around. We view boarding a bus to get to a plane as an inconvenience, as kind of like third world sometimes. And so I think he just kind of highlights the expectations of Americans to be able to board the aircraft directly from the jet bridge and not really liking the bus or the steer kind of options that are commonplace, even by top tier airlines at airports around the world. You know, you asked Rich not to get too political. Are you saying that Americans are spoiled, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) I think we have discerning tastes. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Finer wine is next. But first, we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. Chris, I'm going to let you take this finer wine, and you'll see why in just a moment. This is from Maritza from Largo, Florida. I will never fly Spirit Airlines again. I've never heard anyone say that, actually. (laughs) It was the worst flight experience that I ever had. First of all, just when we were about to take off, the pilot announced that we had to go back to the gate because of an issue with the airplane. 
We stayed sitting inside the plane for about 90 minutes with no water or anything. Finally, because all the passengers were complaining, the flight attendants passed two ounces of warm water. I assume that's per person. They weren't the friendliest crew. It was horrible. We'll never use this airline again. Chris, is this fine or is this a whine? I hate to disagree with a loyal listener, but uh, this is a generally a whine. If the 90-minute delay on an airplane is the worst experience you've ever had in travel, either you're not a very frequent flyer or you're a very lucky flyer, there is a USDOT tarmac rule in place, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, which precludes an airline from keeping passengers on board a domestic flight for longer than three hours. The rule is four hours for international flights. And they must provide water if the delay is longer than two hours. So while this 90-minute delay Certainly wasn't fun, especially if you were sitting there in a face mask. It was nowhere close to any limits of the DOT rule. And the flight attendants likely couldn't open up the galley, get out the ice, and do a more expansive beverage service because they needed to be ready to go as soon as the plane was cleared. But I'll give you a fine for the unfriendly crew. That's never acceptable. But in general, I think uh, this was well within bounds and kind of a whine from our listener. I agree with you, Chris. It's never acceptable to be rude to customers, but 90 minutes isn't the best way to spend your time sitting on an airplane. But if that is the worst thing that happens to your day, you're still having a pretty good day. Hey, Ben, as we bring this baby in for a landing, I wonder if you're up for a little shout out of the week for something you found of interest. Uh, I'm going to start. A big shout out to both Southwest Airlines and my hometown of Fresno, California, which has been trying for years probably 30 at least, to get Southwest service. They finally are getting it with the news this past week that Southwest will start nonstop service to Las Vegas and Denver beginning April 25th. We'll see our friend Barry Biffle at Frontier does going head-to-head in the Fresno-Denver market. And then, of course, United also flies that route. But uh, good news for my friends in Fresno. My shout-out, Chris, is going to go back to an earlier part of the podcast. My shout-out's going to go to United Airlines, an airline I'm not always favorable toward, but I think that their description of how they see travel demand recovering and their very pragmatic and sober view of when people are going to be comfortable traveling again and what that means for airline demand and capacity was actually quite refreshing in the sense that they didn't feel they had to sort of send a rosier message. And so I, my shout out goes to them for having the, the courage and the conviction to say, we're going to tell it the way we see it. Not all companies do that all the time. Good stuff. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Airlines Confidential. We appreciate your listening. And thanks again to Richard Metz for joining us this week. We'd love to hear from you with feedback, comments, or questions. Remember, we have a new phone number, which is 202-964-0177. Or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the links to contact us. We're available on all major podcast platforms. Until next week, I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.